So we ask, Father, that this evening, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, would you please open our eyes to see again our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, more clearly, that we'll be responding in faith and obedience to him, bringing glory and honor to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, for those of you who have not met me, my name is Kenneth. I'm one of the pastoral staff here in SMAC. It's good to see you here this evening. I do need a cup of water, and that should be an indication to you how long the sermon will be tonight. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding, all right? <laughs> well, we are going to do Exodus 1 and 2, two chapters tonight, okay? Uh, but I've spaced out the readings so that it will be fresh in your mind as we go through the sermon. So we'll cover 1 to 7, we'll do a sermon, and then after that we'll read again, Okay? Let's start. Well, if only God reveals himself, makes himself known, I would believe in him. If only I could encounter God personally, my faith would increase. Can God be known? Can man encounter God? In the coming months, here in Smack, in the book of Exodus, God will show us that the answer must be yes. For Exodus is about God making himself known. The book as a whole is divided into two parts. Both focuses on the theme of knowing God. The first half is about coming to a personal knowledge of God. We can see that being played out in Moses' and Pharaoh's encounter with God. The second half of the book develops this theme further by focusing on the establishment of a relationship, a special relationship between God and his people. And we can see this in the giving of the law, and the building of the tabernacle. Many today are very familiar with the book of Exodus, but they are familiar with it as a storybook. It's, it's a storybook, for it tells a story, but it is more than a storybook. It is a theological book. It is a theological book because it tells us about Theo, about God. For throughout Exodus, God takes the initiative to make himself known. He reveals himself. So if you are someone sitting here today wanting to encounter God and that you want to know more about who he is, Exodus is the book for you. So let's begin in chapter 1 that was just read to us. Point 1, setting the sin, Israelites in Egypt. First of all, you must understand that reading Exodus is a bit like reading Tolkien's Two Towers without reading Fellowship of the Ring. Or like watching Bond Supremacy without watching Bond Identity. Because Exodus is part of a bigger book called the Pentateuch. It begins with Genesis and ends in the fifth book called Deuteronomy. So if you have not read the first book, Genesis, these introductory verses that was read to us in Exodus, it would just be meaningless and historical report for you concerning the Israelites in Egypt. But in actual fact, Many of the elements are intended to remind the readers of things that he already said in Genesis. Sons of Israel came to Egypt. Joseph was there first. Joseph died. If you double-click on each one of them, you'll find a rich story behind them in Genesis. And if you have read Genesis, verse 7 will stick out for you like a sore thumb. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. 
These exact words were found in Genesis again and again. All the way from the beginning, you already can see this verse. For example, in 128, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Exodus cannot be understood in isolation. It is part of a bigger story. So in order to understand the Israelites' present situation, as we see in Exodus, we need to understand their past. In fact, for the Israelites themselves back then, in order to make sense of the circumstances they are, they are experiencing in Egypt, they need to understand the past, their past, that brought them there in the first place. So let me now give you a one-minute overview of Genesis. At the beginning, we see God created human beings to enjoy special relationship with him and to rule the earth on his behalf. However, the first man, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. As a result, they were alienated from him. They were punished through the divine curses and expelled from Eden. The early chapters of Genesis then concentrated on the terrible consequences of these early developments. The rest of Genesis, from chapter 12 onwards, move forward with a hope that humanity will one day be reconciled to God. And central to this hope is the promises that God made in Genesis 12 to this man called Abraham. God said to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will multiply you greatly. I will bless you and I will make your name great. The whole earth will be blessed through you. There's Genesis for you under a minute. But that doesn't mean that you don't go back and read Genesis, okay? So now... When we see in Exodus 1, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. That's what we saw, isn't it? What are we meant to see? We are meant to see God's promises to Abraham coming to realization. God's plan to reverse the fall is going according to his plan. And when the people of Israel themselves, they find themselves growing in Egypt, how were they meant to understand their situation? Well, they were meant to perceive that God's promises that has been made to their forefathers are now being fulfilled in their lifetime. In other words, the Israelites could only make sense of their existence in Egypt. They could only gain a full understanding of their lot in life in light of what God has said and has done in their past. Do you follow? And friends, this principle of understanding our present in light of God's deeds in the past applies not only to the Israelites, applies not only to how we read and understand Exodus, but it applies to how we understand our present circumstance in life now. No matter how you choose to view your present circumstance that you are, you are going through now, Exodus is reminding us that the full story stretches all the way back to the beginning of the world. And it is only in seeing your situation from this broad divine point of view that you can have any hope at all to gain an understanding of your lot in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? How do I fit in? Where is my niche in life? What am I doing here? Why am I in this job? Everyone asks these questions at one point or another in their life. 
since the dawn of recorded history, we have always pondered over our identity as a human race, as ethnic groups, and as individuals. The Bible tells us one's identity can only be properly grasped and understood in terms of one relationship to God in Christ. John Calvin is right when he said, you can only know yourself if you know God. Are you someone here tonight who has always been lost all this while? You have been wrestling with self-identity, wrestling with self-image, don't know who you are and how do you fit in? And where have you been trying to find your identity? Where have you been looking? You can't find it by merely tracing your family tree. You have to trace what our God has been doing with our human ancestor ever since the beginning of creation. And most importantly, what God has done for humanity in Christ. Many people today are crazy about tracing the family tree. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how about us? Should we not be crazier in learning more about our family roots that traces all the way back not just to the New Testament, but to the Old Testament? That belongs to us in Christ. That is our family history. Andy would live. Can I get you to come up and read chapter 1, verses 8 to 22? Thank you. Okay, Exodus chapter 1, beginning verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thank you. Well, just when we thought that things were going smoothly, according to God's plan, the descendants of Abraham were multiplying and filling the earth, just as God had promised in Genesis 12, isn't it? Just then, suddenly we find the Israelites under threat. God's plan to restore humanity through Abraham is now in jeopardy. Just overnight, the political climate of Egypt just changed. The old pharaoh, a friend, a buddy of the Israelite, died. Generations passed, another pharaoh came into power. But this one has no love for the Israelites. In fact, he finds them a major threat to national security. And so he implemented three policies to control the increasing Israelite population. First, he put them in labor camps. Then he ordered the midwives to kill the boys at birth. When things got desperate, he commanded the blatant murder of all the male Israelite infants. The situation is pretty bad. It's appalling. People are, people are being ruthlessly enslaved. They are victims of a massacre, a genocide, organized by the central government of the country that they're living in. But what makes the situation even more shocking and intriguing is that these victims are Israelites. They are descendants of Abraham, to whom God made great promises. So inevitably, from such a situation, questions must arise. First question, what is the relationship between political climate and the fate of God's people? between political climate and the progress of God's plans. For it seems that the fate of Israelites lies in the hands of the ruling Pharaoh. One day, it's a pro-Israelite Pharaoh. Another, it is an anti-Israelite one. Over the centuries, political leaders have risen and fallen. And all of us here have experienced, some more than others, the effects of the change of hands of these superpowers both internationally and nationally. We see Christians getting anxious over government elections, not just of our own countries, but of others. Would be pro-Christian, would be democratic, would there be freedom of speech so that the gospel can go forth? Does the fate of God's people, the progress of God's plan hinges on the political climate of the day? The three New Testament passages that were read to us, Matthew 28, Colossians 1, and Philippians 2. Did you pick up what is the common thread? They brings us to the same conclusion that Exodus will bring us. All of them univocally point to one conclusion, and that is, our God reigns supreme, and all powers are subject to him which means our Iraqi brothers and sisters today, their lives are in the good hands of Jesus, not IS. That means Malaysian Christians, our future, are in the good hands of Jesus, not in AMNO, not in PKR, or any other government. But some will say, 
Well, if God is in control as you claim, where is he? We can imagine the Israelites asking this as well, can we? Can't we? How could God allow this terrible turn of events to take place? Why has God of our fathers, the God who promises abiding faithfulness to us and to our ancestors, allow us to be slaves now? Look at this young upstart Pharaoh flexing his, army, his muscles. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make this Pharaoh go away? Why, doesn't, why has God forgotten us? Well, these are pretty legitimate questions, don't you think? These are pretty legit questions. For throughout Exodus 1 and 2 that we have read and will continue to read, God seems to be absent. The foiling of Pharaoh's evil plans wasn't attributed to God. The midwives, though they were motivated by the fear of God, seemed to have avoided Pharaoh's anger by their own wits. They cook up a story about a strong Israelite woman, and they save the day. And later, in chapter 2, we shall see, it seemed that it is the cleverness of the mother and the daughter that saved Moses, not the mighty hands of God. If you were an Israelite, you would have strongly felt God's absence. So is God absent. The rest of Exodus will emphatically say, no, he's not. The lesson to be learned here is this. Neither our present circumstances nor our perception of God's absence determine reality. The Israelites may not feel like God is there, but God is. It may not look like God is there, but he is. And he will show them that very soon. Friends, God's people, you and me, those who are in Christ, are never alone. Times and circumstances change, governments change, but God is the same and remains with his people all the time. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has and he will always rule creation and history. But if that's the case, is there a place for doubt in the Christian life? Can Christians doubt God's presence? Or are Christians meant to feel God's presence all the time? No. Listen to what the psalmist in Psalm 73 says. Let me read to you. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. Many Psalms, including this one, questions God's absence. But they do so knowing that he is there. The psalmist, this psalmist knows that God is good. But he sees around him that things are contrary to what it should be. The arrogant is prospering, the righteous is suffering. So he questions, how can this be? Where is God? Doubts of, God, doubts of God's presence will come in all Christians' life if it has not come to you yet. Times of spiritual dryness. 
what would you do when it comes? Or what have you done when it comes? Psalm 17, in Psalm 73, the psalmist goes directly to God. Even when he doubts God's presence, he turned to God for solace. That's funny, isn't it? Why? Because God is simply there. Our perception does not determine reality. God is present. God cares. He is there. So our sense of his absence must be met head on, just like the psalmist. Be honest with God, cry out to him, and the result will be a deeper, more trusting, more intimate relationship with God. Let's take a look now at the next section, point three, the birth and adoption of an Israelite child. Chapter two, verse one to 10. Okay, chapter two, beginning at verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, the despair and the apparent hopelessness in chapter 1 is now interrupted. Interrupted suddenly by the report that an Israelite child is born and he survives the massacre. We are not told yet just what relevance the birth of this child has to the plight of the Israelites. But we will soon find out in the coming chapters that this is not just the rescue of one Israelite child, but it is the rescue of the entire nation. For it is through this child that God will rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. But without going any further, there are already enough hints in these verses to indicate that that is exactly what God is planning to do through this baby. And again, if you have read Genesis, the things that appear here would have stuck out to you. The basket that is mentioned here, 
the one coated with bitumen and peach, the one that protected and saved baby Moses through the waters, the waters that destroy many lives, that basket will have triggered something in your memory. And you don't even need me to tell you that the word for basket here is actually ark. Two times it appears in the Old Testament. You will figure out a clear connection to the flood story in Genesis 6. So like Noah, we can now expect Moses to act as a vehicle through whom God will save and create a new people for his own purposes. And not only that, Moses' safe passage through the waters, through the reeds of the riverbank, not only looks back to what God has done in Noah's day, saving his people, but it looks forward to the day when God will provide a safe passage for his people, not through the reeds this time, but through the Red Sea. In Exodus 13, And he was named Moses because he was drawn out of the waters. But beyond the wildest imagination of of Pharaoh's daughter, not only has this baby boy been drawn out of water, but under his leadership, God will one day draw Israel through the Red Sea to himself. Israel as a nation will be born in Exodus. So you see, the birth of Moses is not merely the birth of one man, but represents the birth of a people, a nation. The saviour of God's people is born, and through him he will receive, they will receive a new beginning. Their slavery will end, and their saviour will bring them safely into the rest, the promised land. And doesn't that sound just too familiar to the Christian years? Let me not get ahead of myself. Let's wait for Exodus 13. Another theme in chapter 2 that is not to be missed is the way that God works. As mentioned earlier, God seemed to be absent, distant from his people. But in reality, as we have seen, he's actually there. He's just working behind the scenes. Think about it. A desperate mother, she's forced to take her chances. She put her three-month-old baby floating in the river in hope to save him from Pharaoh's decree, to take him as far away as possible from Pharaoh's sphere of influence. But what happened? He ended up being raised in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh planned to kill Israelite boys by casting them into the river. This seemed to be threatening God's promises to Abraham. His plans to bless the world through Israel will all be spoiled. But God saved Moses by casting him onto the very same river and brought him to Pharaoh's front door. You see, God did not remove Moses from the situation. Neither did God strike down Pharaoh. He could do both easily. But he did not. Instead, God placed Moses in the same Nile that Pharaoh intended for the boy's harm. It is precisely by the means of the decree that God brings deliverance. Again, if you have read Genesis, such a display of God's sovereignty wouldn't surprise you at all, isn't it? 
you would have remembered Joseph in Genesis 45. What his brothers meant for evil, selling him into slavery into Egypt, was used by God not just to save Joseph, but the entire family, including the brothers. Do you begin to see a trajectory, a pattern of how God works here? A trajectory that will help us grasp just how sovereign God is. Jesus Christ was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But it is through the very vehicle that men meant evil, the gruesome cross, that God used to bring salvation for mankind. God never lost control for a single moment at all throughout history. From Moses' birth to any external circumstances at all that threaten that birth, God is in full control. There is a very important principle for us to learn here as Christians. Paul says in Romans 28, 828, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Most of the time, this verse is misunderstood to mean that God works against our everyday trials to somehow bring about some good. Yes, it is true that God can and God does at times deliver people out of their circumstances. But what this verse as well as, 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 well as Exodus is saying is rather God works not against, but through and with and in those bad and terrible circumstances for our good. You see the difference? What it implies is that the mark of a Christian life is not what happens to us. Many people think that a Christian means, being a Christian means that bad things won't happen to us. That somehow, everyday circumstances that affect all other people, God will suspend it just for us. But no, Paul does not say that nothing will happen to Christians. But whatever that happens to Christians, including bad things, will eventually and sovereignly be used by God to be turned into good for the benefits of his saints. That is why Paul can say in Romans 5, I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into the hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul is not encouraging his readers to ignore their circumstances and just rejoice anyway, to keep a stiff upper lip, to keep a stiff upper lip. No, we rejoice because we suffer. We rejoice because we suffer. For we know that the end product is hope that, that will not disappoint. God is at work in and through and with airy circumstances in our life for our good to make us more like Christ. And in the birth of Moses, in the death of Jesus, we have seen God doing just that. He is capable to do that. 
Let us now take a look at the last section. Point four, rejection and flight of Moses. Exodus 2, beginning verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. All right, there's the last lap, okay? Point four. We see the story jumps very quickly to the time that Moses is an adult. Like in chapter one, many of the themes that will surface here will once again surface in the rest of Exodus. Let me show you now just three themes. Firstly, did you notice the response of the Israelites when Moses interceded, interceded the second time in the second conflict? Moses interceded in the second conflict, and how was the response? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to tell us or anyone else here what to do? There's complete rejection. Obviously, we don't expect the Israelites to know that they were talking to their future God-appointed rescuer. But still, such a response acts as a very strong hint of Israel's future rejection of not only God's leaders, but God himself. Again and again, we will see the Israelites doing just that throughout Exodus, throughout the Pentateuch, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, rejecting God 
as they reject his appointed leader. Think about it. After witnessing 10 miraculous plagues, with their back facing the parted Red Sea miraculously open for them, what did the Israelites do? They complained against Moses and against God. They rejected him and would rather go back to Egypt. When they had no water, water came out of the rock. When they have no food, food rained from the sky. And yet, they complain against Moses and against God all the time. Beyond Exodus, this rejection continues. Moses himself rebelled against God in Numbers, in a tragic turn of events. Later, the nation Israel actually split into two kingdoms. Why? Because the people rejected God's appointed leaders. The prophets, they were rejected again and again. Just take Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah was scorned, he was beaten, he was put in prison and then put into a cistern. And finally, they rejected Jesus. He was God's own son, sent directly from the Father. You wouldn't expect him to be rejected. And yet, he was in the world, and that though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to reach to that which is his own, but his own did not receive him. Opposition to God and his chosen deliverer is a common theme throughout the whole Bible. And we see, we see strong hints of this already at the beginning of Moses' adult life even before his official role was announced. Rebelling against God, rejecting him and his leaders is in man's blood and DNA. Until one man, the perfect man came, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly obeyed God and trusted him. Secondly, we also learn from this passage some characteristics of God's chosen redeemer for his people. How does he look like? Moses is seen here as a defender of the weak in the passage that was read to us. Through the lenses of the gospel, we can now see that these characteristics of Moses that is being displayed in him will be embodied fully in Jesus, our Savior, the ultimate Redeemer. Moses, we see here, he has compassion for the weak. He stands up and he protects them. Christ, our Redeemer, he protects his church. Yes, the church, as a church, we still suffer persecution. But the power that is ultimately behind this persecution is Satan, who wishes to destroy God's church. And Christ, who has died and rose again and has defeated sin and death and defeated the forces of the darkness, he now himself protects the church, like Moses, from Satan. The gate of hell will never prevail. Jesus' ship will never perish. No one can snatch out of his hand. Jesus protects his sheep. We also see Moses as one who not only saved the sheep, but he drew the water and he watered the sheep, as a shepherd should do. Like Moses, Christ shepherds his flock. He cares for his flock. He is the good shepherd who laid down even his own life for the sheep, for his sheep. He does not lead the people astray, but he leads them through dangers and perils until they are safely 
in his fold. That is our shepherd. And lastly, Moses is one who identified with the suffering of his people. Once, there was once that he observed the plight of his people from a distance, from the comfort and the security of his privileged status. But now he comes down. He experienced it firsthand. He named his son Gershom, which means a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is scorned by Egyptians. He is rejected by his own people. Moses ended up in a very lowly, humble position. Christ showed even greater humility. Jesus, in the very nature of God, did not grab hold of the place on the throne, of his place on the throne. But he took on the nature of a servant, made himself nothing, and he was born as a man. He was found in the appearance of a man. He was obedient to death on the cross. He died on the cross. He is God the Son, God the Maker, and yet he is a humble servant showing us the way. Friends, our God, the Christian God, is a selfless God. A selfless God who cares and identifies with his people. Jesus exemplifies the ideal humiliation that we see in Exodus 2. And his standard sets the goal for Christian life and conduct for those who have been called out of darkness and into light. Humility is not a word to be used to describe super-Christians. Humility is a basic ingredient for all who have been saved by the mercy of God. C.S. Lewis said this of humility. Humility is not thinking less about ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. You need me to read that again? Humility is not thinking less about ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. It is not looking back after a day of hard work and struggle and remarking at how humble we were today. It is being in such a state of conformity to Christ that the question does not even enter our heads. The Moses of Exodus 2 must precede the Moses of Exodus 14 who will lead Israelites out of Egypt. Christ, the Christ born of lowly circumstances, who was despised and rejected by men, who died with great shame, must precede the Christ of resurrection. He was humbled and then he reigned victorious. So we too, as the disciples of Jesus, must be broken before we can be built up for his sake. Humiliation is one of the means that God uses in our lives to humble us, to make us more like him. Lastly, just to mention briefly verses 23 and 25 before I close. Notice that when the Israelites cry out to God, God responded to them. The question is, why did God respond? 
The answer to this question is very crucial to understand the rest of Exodus. Israelite cried. God responded. Why did he respond? Well, the passage tells us he responds because he remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant. This means Israelites' cry will be heard. Israelites will be delivered for sure. Why? Not because they were poor people that need to be rescued, but because what is at stake is nothing less than God's own character. God's own character of being a faithful God who keeps his promises is at stake. God will do whatever it takes to make sure that his own character is upheld. It is in his very nature that he must and he will keep his promises, be faithful, and rescue the Israelites. We want to meet God. We want to encounter God. We want to know how he is like. The rest of Exodus will show us what he is like. And this is being played out that he is a faithful God. Let us pray. Just in time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you indeed that you are a faithful God. You are God who keeps your promises. And we thank you that those promises were all fulfilled in Christ. And Father, we thank you that in your kindness you have spoken to us tonight through your word as we begin our series in Exodus together. Father, we pray for all of us here in this room and all across Smack and the cathedral. Those who have been yearning for years to encounter God, to know who you are, to, to have a personal relationship with you. We pray, Father, that as we go through the series and together, they will see that you are God who have revealed yourself, who have shown yourself your character of who you are to your people. And as your people, we have the privilege of knowing you. So we thank you, Father, once again, that you have made yourself known and that you continue to make yourself known through your word, to your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.